Welcome to the Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast take te- takes topics relevant to today's gun owners, and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday carriers and cops. Today, I'm joined by legendary lawman Chuck Haggard, the Marshal Chuck Haggard. And we're going to talk about the current paradigm of LE training and how it kind of needs to be reset. But first, a word from our sponsors. This this month's sponsors are Mantis X and Barrel Block. MantisX.com and BlockSafety.com. And as always, EDC Belt Company. The foundation belt at EDCBeltCo.com. If you haven't already, uh, Guardian Conference 2023, the ticket sales are open and they got early bird pricing through through the end of January. So, as always, the links are in the show notes. And uh, let's go ahead and bring in our guest a little early this time, right? All right, welcome back, Chuck Haggard, the legendary wall man. I already gave you the proper title in intro, I think. Okay. <laughs> so... We originally, we were going to talk about, uh, an expert witness case you were involved in and, and it kind of took a hard right there into, uh, yeah, kind of the state of law enforcement training. Uh, I won't use the profane description you did, but it was B it's BS and, uh, needs a hard reset. So we're going to kind of explore that for about 30 or 45 minutes here. Yeah. So uh, it's something I've known. Yeah, I've been I've been in law enforcement for 35 plus years now, and it's something I've known like basically the whole time. So when I got on my job, my first job, uh, the one I retired from in uh, the late 80s, I quickly realized that training was subpar at best. Uh, things were really disjointed. Like we had a firearms guy took it to syringe, shot, taught us how to shoot uh, revolvers, and the whole thing was based around like. Uh, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but the whole thing was based around passing this 60 round PPC revolver course. We had a guy that uh, showed us how to use the handcuffs and we had another guy showed us how to use pure 24 baton. And then, you know, eventually we were out on the street with FTOs and very, very minimal, except for the legalities of, you know, when you can use force. They were very big on getting us up to speed on Garner versus Tennessee because that had just been decided. Granby Connor was uh, to come later, but Garner versus Tennessee, they wanted to make sure everybody knew you can't just shoot fleeing felons anymore because uh, that used to be something that, you know, a guy running from a burglary, stealing a TV could catch a bullet in the ass. And that was completely legal, you know? So they made sure to drill that into everybody. <clears throat> but I quickly realized that not, I, I had expected some sort of like combatives or arresting control or wrestling or judo or something out of like how to subdue bad guys, you know, because back then we had guns and batons and uh, big flashlights and that was about it, Right. So a lot of what we did was empty handwork and we had absolutely no instruction on that whatsoever. So very quickly, I decided to take, uh, cause I was, I had been reading up guys like Evan Marshall, Moss AU, uh, guys like that. And, uh, Keith Jones and had uh, decided, well, um, Moss AU had used the line, something about being your own expert witness. And I'm like, man, this is a, this is really screwed up. And then things in the, in the eighties and the nineties, when I was, when I was a baby cop on the street, 
were really rather violent in my area. Crime rate was high at one point. Our per capita crime rate in Topeka was greater than Los Angeles's per capita crime rate for part one crimes. Oh wow! So things are pretty bad. And I'm like, man, if I'm going to live through this, I need to, uh, you know, I was, I'd read about like the, the FBI Miami gunfight was very new. That, that was like 10 months before I got hired on my job. Uh, I'd read about new hall and, and things like that. And, so I knew I had to get some more training. So then I started bringing it back to my buddies. And eventually I got a firearms instructor cert and, and I, I went and uh, trained with Jim Lindell in Kansas City National Law Enforcement Training Center and had learned a lot of their system, like his famous handgun retention system, because we had no weapon retention training whatsoever, which is crazy when you get into the 70s, like 25 percent of all cops feloniously killed were killed with their own gun. So. I, I quickly learned the term deliberate indifference uh-huh. and that's where my department was at was they had a deliberate indifference to training. You know, the whole thing was denial. Oh, that's not going to happen. That sort of thing. So took it upon myself to get some of this training and eventually started a defensive tactics arrest and control system at my department and, and built that from scratch. You're talking 88, right? That about 87, 87, 87 80? My first kind of job was 87. Yeah. How old were you at that time? Just out of curiosity. I'm not trying 21, to 21, 22. What really raised the BS flag for you there? Speaking from my past experience, it was seeing my dad, my uncle, my aunt interacting mm-hmm. in that world and having to go to newer modernized training and, and, you know, pepper spray and things like that kind of had that curiosity and growing up in a gun shop, I was reading gun mags, right? So like mm-hmm. mass Ayub and all these dudes in combat handguns and even Rob Garrett's article. I wrote, read a couple of his back in the day, you know? So, so what, what spurred that for you? So I'd, I'd had some time in a, I'd, I'd been through some military training. I was in the, I was in the army national guard at that point. My dad was a uh, 27 years, regular army. Um, and, uh, you know, had been uh, Korea and Vietnam both. So I, you know, I knew how, how serious things could be. Um, when you're a kid and your dad comes home from Vietnam shot and is on convalescent leave and that sort of thing, that leaves an impression on you that wow. yeah, bad shit happens to to people, you know? And uh, so I had read, like like I say, Masayub, Jim Cirillo, uh, Evan Marshall, a bunch of those guys that had uh, cautioned that your department isn't going to take care of you training-wise. And I'm like, yeah, that's it's just like they said they did. And I just felt really... Well, early on, I felt kind of weak in the area. I was a really gifted uh, rifle shooter, shotgun shooter, had, but had minimal time on handguns. And then like our academy experience, uh, if I went out in a patrol car initially, I had a 357 Magnum, 18 rounds of ammo. And at that time, our department had a rusty 870 shotgun in a rack on the dash of the uh, Chevy Caprice. And he had four rounds of Remington high brass number four buck. There was no extra ammo, no slugs, no nothing. So that's all I had to solve my problems if it turned into a gunfight. So I thought, man, I better get really good with a revolver. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I went down that journey. Um, but then I realized just how much of what we dealt with is hands-on stuff and then dealing with uh, reading people, talking to people, the tactical setup. And I'm kind of proud of the fact of how many shootings I avoided 
by knowing how to use good tactics and, and putting myself in a position of dominance where bad guy had no choice but to surrender or I was physically um, able to go hands on and stop it from turning. You know, I've got three live. De- I've had people pull, try to pull handguns on me three times in my career at very close range. And I was able to stuff the draw and take their gun away from them instead of like, you know, it turned into a shooting or me getting shot or something like that. Um, Anyway. So, you know, we had talked about the, you know, through, through my career, I I had developed, you know, the, the training and everything I've gone to. And I'm a big believer in going out and getting your own training, firearms training, doing, I think every cop in America should be doing jujitsu in, in some form or another, Um, getting some boxing, getting some striking skills. You should be going to the gym, that sort of thing. I think the entire paradigm of police training needs a hard reset in that departments should be providing the training necessary for cops to do the job. We don't expect like, you know, a Delta operator or a SEAL team guy to be, you know, could you imagine you're, you get on a SEAL team and then the uh, command tells you, well, you're going to have to go get a sports scuba certification, go scuba diving on your own time to keep up your skills. Or if you're an F-15 pilot, you know, hey, you're going to have to go get a general aviation license and buy a Cessna and then keep your flight hours up. You know, nobody nobody would tell a special operations guy, you got to do all this stuff on your own. Now, we know that they do. They take it upon themselves to like go to the gym and probably, you know, go to the range extra, things like that. But the the agency or the, the entity provides what they expect the minimum amount of training you have to be able to operate this level we don't do that in law enforcement in the united states Uh, we commonly leave our people hanging out to dry which that case down in texas that, that brought this conversation on was just further glaring proof to me of how badly an agency can screw their officers over and though even though they should provide the training they should provide the equipment. The current state of law enforcement is your, your two choices for street survival and court survival are become your own expert, become your own expert witness, or get the hell out of your shitty agency and go find one that's going to take better care of you. Um, yeah, just as an example, the, uh, the deputy that I was defending in that, that Texas case you know, something as minimal as his taser certification was more than four years out of date because the sheriff didn't want to pay, uh, you know, t- taser recertification is expensive because you're using cartridges and things like that. So, you know, it'll be fine. We'll just we're not going to do that every year, even though, you know, the industry standard is that you need to do that at least once a year. Um, so, you know, the my, my advice to young guys is if, you, if you're being you're you there's a possibility in this case, it was a criminal trial that your department could be setting you up uh, for a failure to train, could be setting you up for a civil rights violation, could be setting you up for a criminal case because, uh, you know, they may in like in this case, cooperate throwing you under the bus in the criminal case. Um, One of the most blatant ones I saw in recent memory was remember that San Francisco BART case where the cop did, uh, hey, I thought I was pulling my taser and I pulled the gun and shot the guy. Yeah. You remember that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was all, all on the subway, uh, the all on the subway stand there, um, all on video. Yeah. Well, in that case, <laughs> the the 
they had it. The, the department was so jacked up. Their training was out of date. They were providing insufficient training. They didn't have enough tasers to go around. They have multiple styles of holster. So you might show up to work and like, I'm going to work and you're getting off work. So I'm like, Hey, Brian, give me your taser. Mm-hmm. So I got a taser to go to work with. And in this case, they, you know, your taser may be a drop leg underneath your duty pistol, or the next day it might be a cross draw, mm-hmm. or you might have to stick it in a pocket. So what had happened was the day he had his uh, incident, he had the, the taser was on a le- on a leg holster underneath his duty gun. So he wasn't familiar with the draw stroke. It was too mm-hmm. close to his handgun. You have weapon confusion in the middle of a fight. Well, the the department was clearly and I believe criminally negligent. But what did they do? They helped frame him for a murder, and he he ended up going to prison on a on a uh, not not first degree it's but like manslaughter or something. Know, man, you know, involuntary manslaughter or something like that. Uh, if you're working for an agency like that, my my stern advice to you is get as much training as you possibly can to be your own expert witness or get the hell out of there and go do something else somewhere else uh, because you are being set up for failure and your agency may not just not support you, but they may participate in throwing you under the bus and sending you to prison. If you're around long enough, you'll see multiple examples of that along the training side, uh, develop DT stuff. And, and Mm -hmm. that is a huge, huge undertaking now. Uh, and that is one of the areas that since I've been in law enforcement has improved dramatically as far as like hands-on stuff. We've really mm-hmm. been proactive, at least the agency I've worked for has been really proactive in that and getting, getting dudes that wear, you know, different colored belts in jujitsu and whatnot to really yeah. shape tactics and, and, uh, policy and things like that. And I had a recent discussion with, uh, one of the trainers about you know why do we we excel in this area and then on the firearm side leaves a lot to be desired what what's the disconnect there and his answer was well the hands-on stuff isn't theoretical we can go pressure test it immediately whereas Mm -hmm. with handguns i can't i can't shoot you to prove a point right well i guess you could but only one time before before that was frowned upon i've seen that but then you go to other agencies and there is a mix of standards across the board. You know, some of them are some of the old archaic state standards. Some of them are very modernized. Some of them, the policy and procedure and and it's just all over the map. There's no consistency for any of it. So what do you think the solution for that is without saying, Hey, federal government, we need a nationalized standard. Oh, that's uh, that would that would be the absolute worst possible thing we could do. I agree. Um, you know, the, the the look at look at how much the feds screw up already on on like national standards and stuff. We we already have like just in the firearms training. If you look at um, something as simple as pop out V Margate, right? 
Uh, if you look at the pop out case, the courts have already told us <clears throat> what do you need to be doing? And, you know, they found that the training in that in that case was insufficient. That's why the ba- the bystander got shot. So what do we need to be doing? We need to be shooting on the move, shooting at moving targets, low light training, things like that. All of that that is well, well beyond what the average qualification course covers. And if you extrapolate that and you look at a case like Zuko v. Denver, um, you know, that part of that case was uh, the predicated upon the like they had the officer on the stand and they were asking him questions like you know when was the last time you had interactive use of force decision making training and he hadn't had any for the past 10 years ever since he left the academy so things like scenario training simulations training things like that um you know video like the fats type machines or whatever they're called now um all of that is in play and if you look at vast majority of agencies i'm familiar with they don't uh you got people that can barely pass a qualification course our state standards here in, in kansas are to maintain as le certification all you have to do is 70 percent on the kansas c-post course which is just absolutely just a really poor level of training with a handgun if the best you can do is 70% on the CPOS course. Um, you know, our course is that for an in-service course, it's not great. It's a, it's, you've seen it. It's a challenging snub revolver course, mm-hmm. but as far as like modern semi-auto pistol stuff, it, it's, it's absolutely abysmal in the quality of a shooter that if that's all you can pass, then, you know, you're a really poor shooter. But all we really need to do is a job task analysis. What does the average cop need to be able to do? You need to be able to, you know, look at look at patterns of, you know, how many times, Brian, have you had some suspect on the ground and they turtle up their arms underneath them to avoid being cuffed? So do we need to have tactics that we can safely deal with that without going overboard? Quite frankly, there's a lot of fads. There's so many departments now that put all of their all of their eggs in one basket with the, you know, using tasers because the magic electric pistol is going to solve all your problems. And then we've got, you know, issues with tasers. You know, my experience with tasers is they're a 50-50 on the street, whether they're going to work or not, because of clothing disconnects, insufficient muscle mass, things like that uh, being involved. Um, I've seen some trends like I was around when uh, pepper spray first hit. And then now I, you know, I see a lot of, even though it's a phenomenally effective tool with a lot of historical data behind it, I see a lot of cops that aren't even bothering to carry it because their department doesn't make them and they don't keep the training up. We look at, you know, what does a cop need to be able to do? Um, you know, they need to be able to drive a patrol car. They need to be able to drive a, a patrol car with lights and siren. They need to be able to shoot a handgun. They need to be able to apply handcuffs, et cetera, et cetera. And when we're looking at use of force um, in the hands-on arena, a lot of this stuff just gets left by the wayside. You know, what's common, what's common, um, methods of suspect resistance. And then what do we do about that? There's no job task analysis involved in any of this. Yeah. And you know, our mutual bud, Daryl, uh, you, I, I always lend towards the firearm stuff, you know, and, and Daryl and I were talking about, uh, 1911 pistols. Right. And he said, you know, I, I agree that is the finest gunfighting tool that has ever been made. It's ever created. It's the best, the best tool for for gunfights. However, it occurred to him and me one day, we're not in the gunfighting business. 
we're in the prisoner taking business. Mm-hmm. So that kind of now taking on that, uh, you know, just looking at that firearm, I go, is that the best one to be in the prisoner taking role with? Well, maybe, maybe not, but there are certainly plenty of other pistols that fall into the realm of, of, of acceptable for that role. Uh, and that's something I see that gets really convoluted on the firearm side uh, with departments is, you know, are you teaching these guys to be in the gunfight business? You want them to win gunfights if they happen to find their way into one, but you're much more likely to take a person and put them in jail than you are to have to gunfight with them. So I feel like the priorities there are a little skewed. Um, and there has to be a, there has to be a mix of both, right? I see a lot of departments spending an inordinate amount of time on gunfight fantasy camp versus teaching their officers to be proficient with a handgun. Uh, and there's, that's, that's a, a very debt looks very different um, versus defensive tactics side. Uh, they tend to really, at least in my area, they tend to be very tuned into it, especially with body cameras and stuff like that as to how to shape training to what actually applies and what, the job they're doing actually does. So I like the way you phrase that. What did you call it? A job analysis, a job, job, job task analysis, job task analysis. Yeah. Uh, Claude Warner and I have talked about the handgun thing for, for quite a while. And I know a bunch of people, uh, I forget who I stole it from, but the idea that, you know, cops carry a, a, a pistol, it's, it's an emergency defense weapon, but it's also a threat management tool. Um, we, you know, I've, I've had my gun out and people off the end of my muzzle thousands of times in my career that I did not shoot, uh, because they were given the option of surrender or else, you know, drop the gun, drop the knife, things like that. So it's a, the, you know, what we want to, we, we want to keep that in mind and it's a threat management tool. It's not just, you know, uh, and so I, I'll tell you how myopic people can get on something like this. Remember the, uh, Kyle Dinkeller video, where uh, the deputy pulls the guy over uh-huh. and he's a crazy Vietnam veteran and he's dancing. And, you know, then eventually they, they have the encounter and the guy goes back to his, his truck and he pulls out the M1 carbine and eventually deputy Dinkeller loses a gunfight against this guy. Right. Right. Uh, guy, guy shoot. So in the course of that guy getting the gun, um, the deputies yelling at him, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. And all these cops that I know when we're watching this video are like, oh, my God, why isn't he shooting him? Why isn't he shooting him? Why didn't he shoot him sooner? Why didn't he shoot him sooner? That's the wrong question. When that guy came at him empty handed, why didn't the deputy handle his business? If he had used enough force early and competently, that would have never been a shoot problem or a shoot scenario. You know, if he had pepper sprayed that guy and arm barred him into the dish and cuffed him up, if he had applied his ass baton, which is a crappy tool, um, their, their, their crappy batons and, and poor training system has ruined baton work for police, but whatever. Um, you know, if he had applied some level of physical force, OC taser. I mean, he was a big kid. He probably could have bear hugged him and dropped him headfirst in the ditch and sat on him till help got there. All of these other things could have kept that from ever turning into a shootout. Right. You know, and we're not, we're not focused on where did the wheels fall off on this incident? And it was very early on when we were in the verbal stages. And then when we had a failure to physically control the, the problem, um, 
that 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 all of this. I mean, we've been we've been talking cop centrically, um, but one of the things I wanted to throw out there that I uh, found in this trial pretty disturbing was yeah. one that they filed criminal charges to begin with in in the case we're talking about. Yeah. And and when I'm sitting in trial, because we were expert witness, we weren't sequestered. So uh, I, I got to see like the DA's part of it or the aid, I believe it was the assistant district attorney. Um, so things that even if you're not a cop, what if you're an armed citizen and, and you end up going to trial, things that I learned out of this is uh, the uh, the deputy in this case didn't have any like legal defense fund like the FOP or, you know, a lot of these things like that. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, he had enough friends that he crowdfunded a, a defense attorney, oh, you wow. know, so he could pay his uh, lawyer bills. But is any is everybody going to be able to pull that off? Probably not. So like if you're a cop, have something like FOP legal defense plan. If you're a civilian, have something like, you know, CCW safe or something like that that is going to cover you if you get into a shooting or use of force incident. Um, It shouldn't be this way. But I'll tell you, one of the things that I was I was trying not to sit there with my mouth open in the middle of trial because I didn't want to be like off putting to the judge. But I watched this district district attorney make arguments that the deputy had done X, Y, Z, you know, and he had done these things that were really excessive force. And there was absolutely no physical or video evidence that what he was claiming that the deputy did had actually happened. So he's claiming the deputy did this thing. Um, and that's what made it extra like excessive force. You know, that's part of the brutality part of it. And there was no evidence whatsoever in the injury pattern to the suspect. Uh, what was a what was available on the video, things like that. No evidence whatsoever that what he was claiming occurred. had actually occurred. So um, it's like case, framing yeah. his own narrative for the incident that they were they had filed charges on. Like, yeah, so the assistant district attorney was just basically his legal case, in my observation, was I'm going to throw as much crap at the wall as I possibly can and try to get something to stick. Um, I, I, w- I was really disturbed by the whole uh, how this how this uh, prosecution went down. And and I'll set you up a softball for this one. What recourse do they have against the prosecutor Oh, well, when we uh, were putting on my community relations hat from law enforcement, you and I both know that uh, cops can get qualified immunity. And if people don't understand that, let's go back to Garner versus Tennessee, because that's a famous case. So back then, uh, Memphis cop goes to a burglary in progress. He shows up. There's a guy running out of the back of the house with stealing a TV, just a property crimes burglary. He yells for the guy to stop. The guy doesn't stop. So he fires a shot as the guy's jumping the fence, hits him, and it turns out to be fatal. So back then, shooting at fleeing felons who failed to stop was legal. That's the way things were done. So the officer followed his training. He followed Tennessee state law. Case gets, uh, you know, law, a, a civil rights lawsuit is filed. It goes go up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, no, that's excessive force. You can't do that. 
So what do they do? Did they put the cop in jail? No, because he followed the law at the time of the application of force. So that's what qualified immunity is. Mm -hmm. You can't go back in time, change the rules and get in trouble for it. So what that did for law enforcement, like when I came on, was we knew, okay, from this point forward, you can't do that anymore. That is, we've determined that's the law, that's excessive force. So Garner versus Tennessee set. Later, Graham B. Connor is set. So that's qualified immunity. Yes, he did something wrong, but it's it's beside it's you know past act that was legal at the time. We're saying it's not legal anymore. So that's what qualified immunity is. So people think that cops have what prosecutors and judges and, and other people in the legal system have, which is absolute immunity. So, you know, put on, put on my, my politics hat. If you look at a, what a lot of people, um, when they were dumping on our current vice president, Kamala Harris was a prosecutor in uh, California. The prosecution is supposed to give up exculpatory evidence if they know they have evidence that could prove the guy maybe didn't do it or it could be used by the defense. They're supposed to give that up. Well, she withheld evidence on a capital case. She had a guy on death row that she had exculpatory evidence on. And legally speaking, she couldn't be sued for it or criminally prosecuted for it. So that's what absolute immunity um, comes up to. So, you know, when when we're talking about we'll sue the judge for that bad decision, you can't. Yeah. So in this case, the ADA legally, you know, I'm not a, a big whiz on Texas state law, but as far as as far as I know, for making those arguments, the, the ADA can't be held accountable for making what is clearly to anybody on his outside observer a, a false argument or a false claim. Yeah. The only, the only recourse I've seen in that regard is, is, uh, bar complaints and, uh, having, uh, having the bar association disbar an attorney to where they cannot practice law. And I've actually witnessed that twice, uh, in Oklahoma, but it's pretty rare though, pretty it, rare. And, and it was pretty egregious the times that it happened. Uh, and it was for withholding exculpatory evidence and, what ended up happening was they took a one-year bar suspension. So to potentially set this person who may have been wrongfully accused to, to, to have evidence to show that there was some doubt that this was a valid and factual case, their mm-hmm. punitive damage or their, you know, the, the actions that they took were they both lost their jobs and they got a one-year bar suspension. So a year later, they're back practicing law again. So, and I was like, that's it. You know, as a policeman, if I'm held to, uh, like the standard set by Giglio, Mm -hmm. if I'm not truthful in an administrative investigation, I am barred for life from testifying in court. I could be and have no, no further career. Um, yet an attorney does it and, uh, ah, well, here's a year off by uh come back in a year and reapply i thought that didn't really set well with me and and i was unaware that like judges and prosecutors had absolute immunity until i had four or five years on on the job so because i because i I thought the same thing it was like well how do you correct this like how do you and 
Um, you know, and there's a big push to take away qualified immunity, but I don't hear anybody taking away absolute immunity. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that whole thing. So my last job, I was doing a lot of background checks on applicants and I have, uh, officers that were coming from trying to go from one agency to the other. And that was the big deal was in my area because our district attorney's office and things like that, if you got Brady or Giglio material in your file of any kind, um, you know, something as simple as let's say you did a shoplifting when you were 18 years old, um, that makes you unemployable in my state because it's Brady Giglio material that of, of dishonesty. So you're unemployable as a cop. So 18 year old kid steals a candy bar. You're, you know, that's on your record. You're done. Yeah. Well, uh, let's loop it back to police training for a minute here. Um, so you, we were kind of talking about how do we, how do we start to correct this or how does one intervene in this? And I noticed there's a lot of organizations out there like Kalia, for example, that try to set some type of a standard for an organization for how they handle evidence, policy procedures, SOPs, mm-hmm. uh, to where it's not really a nationalized standard so much as it is a common practice, a recognized common practice that they try to, um, employ on agencies. And, uh, I've actually heard from several agency administrators of smaller agencies that it's incredibly cost prohibitive just to be, you know, to stay current and have, uh, what do they call it? The audits and the evaluations done by that organization. It, it gets to be, uh, fairly cost intensive and that's just to maintain administrative standards you know evidence goes from point a to point b and here's the forms you fill out to make it go there and has to be packaged in accordance with this x y and z and that's i mean that's stuff that large agencies it it, it's not really that i won't say it's that big of a deal but it's just not as uh prohibitive but you know you go to small town, Oklahoma, small town, Kansas, you know, a Kalia inspection might be, might cost more than the entire department's operating budget for the year. So that I, doesn't forget help. It, I forget what accreditation cost in Topeka, but I know it was in the area, like a, a re when we were doing a recertification or accreditation when, uh, cause there was the initial one that I wasn't real involved in, but um, I was a commander by the time we were doing the, like the renewal of whatever they call it. But that accreditation process is tens of thousands of dollars that, that goes to, you know, that the Kalia charges you for that process. And that's think about the man hours involved in a, accumulating all that, you know, documentation and examples of, of arrest yeah. procedures. Yeah. Uh, just paying the employees to go mine that data out of the organization is, is incredibly cost intensive. So, yeah, we had a, uh, at, at Topeka, we had a 300, about a 300 sworn department when I was there, they had reserves and part-timers and things like that, but full-time or, our sworn was supposed to be 300. We never hit that. You know, we were always short of that and they're much shorter now with all the recruiting and retention problems that we have in law enforcement. But, you know, for a department that size, we had, uh, two people full-time that were, that their entire job administratively was, uh, accreditation management. Yeah. Two full-time positions just for that. 
Yeah. Salary benefits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's expensive. Um, the firearm side I've, I've seen like ILFE and, and some of the other organizations try to try to implement, uh, you know, curriculum standards and things like that. And it always falls short. It always comes up, uh, uh, lacking. And I don't mean lacking on the, the organization's intent to try to do better. Um, but it ends up, there's so many cost barriers involved that, uh, you know, organizations try to adapt that. And then the States having a governing, you know, a governing accreditation, whether it be T Cole, cleat post, whatever it is, um, that are going to be, they're going to be a hindrance because, Hey, that's directly opposite of the way we believe, you know, or, or our, our standards. So you said something earlier, you said, uh, I think it needs a hard reset. So what does that look like to you? I mean, just completely hypothetical here. Well, uh, I mean, one of the, one of the, (laughs) Mike Brown, uh, did, uh, and I had had a long uh, conversation one time about how things are set up and he had an idea and I thought we needed to professionalize what's going on in the street more. But uh, I think a big part of the problem with the police departments is it, in most places, you just look at like uh, movies, like cop movies, remember like lethal weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're the cool guys are always the detectives. We know in real life, that's not the case because the, the people doing all the real work, they're out there on the, the point of the spear. That's your patrol cops. Uh, who gets all the ammo? Your SWAT guys do. Um, who's much more likely to be involved in a gunfight? Your street cops are. Uh, when you hear about cases that go sideways on a use of force or, you know, a bad shooting or something like that, who's involved in that? Your street cops are. Who is your least well-trained, least experienced, um, least time on the road, people, your street cops. So, uh, the, the, I, I think a real paradigm shift would be, uh, what Michael's idea was is, uh, if your agency, if your best paid, most elite people were your patrol cops, if you had to earn the right to be a patrol cop, they got most of the ammo, most of the training, and they got the big pay rate for achieving that level of elite status. Uh, you know, right now, what does everybody want to do? Get off of the street as soon as possible. You look at the lethal weapon movie when uh, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover got in trouble. What did they do to him? They put him back in uniform as a punishment. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the entire, I think the entire uh, organization of law enforcement in most departments is ass backwards at best. Who do you want driving the cop car in a pursuit at three o'clock in the morning. You want your best people. Who do you want working? Um, you know, uh, any, anybody can do interview and interrogation sitting in a room at the station. Uh, who's best going to handle dealing with the guy with a knife in the middle of the domestic, you know, um, that that's where you need your, your cool heads and your experienced people and people who are very, very competent. And then we look at that job task analysis of what cops need to be able to do. Um, Oh, what's his, I'm trying to think of the dude's name. Um, former Navy SEAL guy, big motivational speaker, Jocko, Jocko, Jocko was talking about how, what's wrong with law enforcement is that you look at it, it's all ass backwards. Like how much training does the Navy SEAL get for how much time they have to do on a mission, you know? 
And then, you know, what do we do with cops? It's, it's, they're, they're working, 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 working. And we might give a cursory bullshit 40 hour of in-service, you know, which, you know, they fill up with, you know, crap. This is like fluff hours. Uh, I went, I went in for a 40 hour in-service one time and not that we don't have tornadoes in Kansas, but you know, four, so four hour class that's 10% of your 40 hour in-service was like weather spotting, you know, like how to actually spot tornadoes because we would get tasked with that sometimes when the weather was pretty bad, but you know, we did just fill up your, your, okay, you got your 40 hours in, get back to work kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, you got your eight hours of firearms, you pass your, you know, 70% on your 50 round C post course, which is clearly almost criminally negligent to put people on the street with that level of competency. But what do we do? We put them on the street with that level of competency or that level of demonstrated incompetency. Uh, that That's where I think the hard reset needs to be is um, then recruiting and standards. It used to be at my department, I was proud of the fact that we would do things like uh, simunition, um, graded simunition uh, scenarios where it was pass fail. If you failed, you could flunk the academy because you were demonstrably incompetent at use of force. You could flunk just like you could flunk the qualification. You could flunk our emergency vehicle operator course and we would wash people out. Well, they quit doing that. Um, so what is that? That dilutes your level of street quality. You know, what's the the quickest way to invalidate your program or prove your program is invalid is never, never flunk anybody. If you look at our most elite operators like a SFQ course, what's the attrition rate of that? Oh, it's like 60 plus percent. It's more like 90 percent of people flunk out. You know, one of the courses that I went to was a sniper course that I was pretty proud of because a lot of, a lot of firearms courses are kind of, kind of pud. Like when I went to our 40 hour firearms instructor school, I just got to shoot a bunch of bullets and I had a week off, uh, you know, at the range. It wasn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't that big a deal. But when I went to the sniper school that I went to 60% of our class flunked out. Uh, I, I think that's, you know, the, the quickest way to invalidate your Academy program is never flunk anybody because it's just such a gimme. Um, that's what, <laughs> I, I don't know if it was Daryl or Vince O'Neill, I got that from or whatever, but that whole attitude, the no cop left behind program is bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we have these people who are to steal a term from the canine, uh, officers, uh, fear biters, you know, they're, they're using guns when they have no business using guns, uh, things like that, because, uh, they're not able to handle their business on the road. It's interesting. You're now the second person in talking about mike brown about uh how everything's kind of backwards uh my dad and i had a conversation probably 15 18 years ago and i said man you know the bulk of the people i see get in trouble that get cause lawsuits cause bad use of force bad shootings they're they're, they tend to be younger people um or or they they bodge a case because their report writing sucks or or whatever um I, I said the bulk of that seems to be, you know, the guys in the rookie growing pains, right? That, that like zero to about five, six years when you're really, you haven't seen it all yet. You haven't really experienced it all. And he said, you know, I, I thought about it for years. He's like, you know, by the time most guys get into an investigations role, they're so burnt out of being on the street and fighting that battle all the time. 
So then they come to an investigations unit and they just kind of chill. Um, and they just, they just kind of scrape by the minimum. And I'm not saying this is all detectives or anything like I'm throwing a blanket out there. No, but he said, I see that a lot. Guys come in and they go, Oh, Oh, I don't have to, I don't have to put on the heavy belt anymore. Oh, great. You know, and then pretty soon their caseloads backed up and, and they, and then the citizens go, Hey, wait a minute. Why, why didn't you find my TV in the pawn shop? That's been in there for six years or whatever it is. And yeah. uh, he said, you know, I always thought how cool would it be to take a, an experimental Academy. And after you give them all the training, you bring them into the investigations bureau for like 24 months and you teach them what a case looks like from, from the time it comes from a patrolman at, up through prosecution so that they can understand that you're not the end all of this case. It goes, there's, there's a, there's a procedure that happens after that. And then you make them earn their way into a patrol car. <laughs> and he's like, so, Oh, okay. Well, you've got to, you've got to shoot this proficiency to go work a patrol car. Uh, you've got to go through defensive tactics, X, Y, and Z every month and, and show this level of proficiency. And, he, and it's odd that a lot of the cops I look up to have that man, everything's backwards mentality mm-hmm. um, or, or view towards how we, uh, how we treat the patrol cops. And, and when I've seen that, you know, my question that I pose to uh, you know, the people that are in those roles that, that allow this, somewhat degree of incompetence is, Hey, when, when your emergency happens, which one of us do you want showing up to your house? Yeah. Which one, which one of you is, do, do you want the guy that's the, what we might call the gun nut? If, uh, if your wife's being held hostage, would you rather that guy show up or the 70% qualification? You mm-hmm. know, would you rather the guy that spends his days off in a jujitsu gym show up to fight the burglar off of you? Or would you, rather the you know guy that couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag you know so and just from the citizen standpoint the legal standpoint me and i'm a big constitutionalist and i believe in like you know correct level of force for a scenario and and i believe in functional de-escalation and that sort of thing is that what i've noticed in all of my time in is the most competent people at doing this stuff are the least likely to need to use it. That a lot of the, a lot of the people that end up in a shooting were people that couldn't physically handle a scenario correctly at a lower level of force, or the people that you know when when I hired on, uh, the night shift guys were just flashlighting everybody. And you know if you if you got lippy or whatever, you caught a flashlight to the head. Well, what were they doing? Because they were incompetent at empty hand uses of force. So they would just go caveman on people. And, you know, what's thagged a caveman going to do? You give him something heavy and he's going to go head hunting and smack people in the coconut. Well, arguably, most of the scenarios I saw that behavior in, uh, you're applying deadly force in a non-deadly force scenario. That's inherently incompetent. So it, what you see out of people that don't have their business handled is, uh, a long string in my observations of excessive force, inappropriate force, uh, a force used incorrectly, injuring people that didn't need to be injured, shooting people that didn't need shot. Um, 
things like that. You know, the the least competent people are the ones, in my observation, that are mo- the most likely to end up using force, and particularly in scenarios where we we know that you know something that it shouldn't have happened, or we in retrospect look at and it you know the wheels fell off. Yeah, and you know the be- the the best cops I've ever worked around were almost like uh, a combination of a you know, a monotone therapist, a stand-up comedian and an MMA fighter that had a little dose of, uh, a little dose of, uh, gun nut in them too. That, that makes it like, I can talk to you like normal. I can make a joke with you. I can beat you up and I can shoot you like, and I'm good at all of those. That, that was kind of not to be kind of crass, but, uh, but those were always the, the people that, that I, I tried to gravitate towards. Um, I used to see a lot of chaos with people that were not competent in certain ways, uh, but uh, verbal skills. And that's a That's, that's one of my pet peeves is the verbal skills part. You know, what, what do we, what do we teach people? Get back, show me your hands, sir, ma'am, stop that. Get back. I mean, like there are these loop phrases that they, and I'm like, you know, sometimes you need to, you need to be able to walk up to somebody and go, looks like you're having a bad day, bro. You want to talk about it? Like, you know, and and I will say verbal skills saved me far, far, far more times than, than firearm skills did hundreds and thousands of times over more than firearm skills did. Uh, and I'm a firearms guy. Like I, that's my jam, you know, uh, some guys are defensive. What's that? I said, I would, I would agree with that. I would agree wholeheartedly with that. You know, I, I actually endorse certain things. Like I, I didn't know I was doing it, but in retrospect, um, you know, once the verbal judo book came out and mm-hmm. I, I learned what that was, I'm like, Hey, I've, I've already been doing some of that stuff, talk people down. But, you know, by then I'd already read my son Sue and, you know, what's the best way to win a battle is, you know, win it without fighting. That, yeah. that, that sort of idea, you know, if you, if you can talk people into cuffs, I think you're doing superior police work. Now, as Pat Rogers used to say, the other guy always gets a vote on your plan, but we, we knew, you know, you and I both know guys that could talk, um, you know, talk their way out of a fight or talk a guy into handcuffs, but then there's other guys that every time they open their mouth, they're in a fight, you know, um, because it, they just didn't have any people handling skills. Yeah. And, uh, personality goes a long way in that. And, uh, and mm-hmm. that's one of those areas I feel like it is very hard to train somebody to do that. Um, and one, one of my goals when I was adjuncting a lot with, with recruits was to just get them away from the militaristic attitude that we, we tend to simulate in academies I understand there has to be some decorum, but I'm like, you need to have some verbal skills. You need to be able to talk to people. And if you can't talk to me as your instructor, Hey, how's it going? Instead of, are you having a good day today, sir? You know, like you've got some stick in your ass. It's like, if you can't do that, then people out here are going to eat your lunch. And, uh, that was always one of the areas I've really struggled to try to like convey, Hey, look, it's all cool to stand there at attention and learn to march you're never going to do that again once you leave this environment. So you better have some verbal skills. And that's one of the things I think 
if agencies looked at that whole, let's put people into either admin or investigative roles right out of the gate, you're now mm-hmm. forcing them to have to talk to people in a contained environment, uh, which I think would be a benefit. Interesting. I think we could solve all the world's problems here today, Chuck. But uh, well, I just you know when we're when we're talking about like things like report writing, I, I can't remember who I stole the line from, but you know when I was when I was in one of the classes of baby cop, we had a guy say, you know. You can write, I got out of my car. You don't have to write, I exited my mobile enforcement unit. You know, right. that, that, that it's okay to say, you know, you can talk that, you can talk like a human, you can write like a human being. Um, it doesn't, you don't have to do this robot stuff. Yeah. And I, I've, uh, testifying in court is where I started to really change my report writing style because. I got up on the stand one time and I looked at it and I was like, what freaking AI driven robot wrote this? And I realized, oh no, that was you, pal. That was early in my, I'm like, oh man, I'm looking at a jury because you're talking to a jury. Uh, You're not Mm -hmm. talking to the prosecutor and the defense and another mistake I see cops make, but I'm talking to the jury and I'm reading what sounds like a robot. And I finally, I just, I put my report away after I'd kind of reviewed it, I stuck it in my pocket and just started talking like a normal human being. And I could see the body language of the jurors change. And I went, Hmm, maybe I need to write reports like this too. So that's, you know, (laughs) that's here to there, I guess. But, but I, I feel like you're absolutely right. We, we do a pretty backwards job of, of, uh, teaching new cops, think that the whole system is is geared backwards um well and uh, so there's the way things should be and the way things we'd like them to be but you know one of the reasons i wanted to, to talk about this was there's a lot of cops doing a lot of cop work right now a lot of people you know been on the job a while or getting into the job and this this case that i had in uh, in texas just reiterated what i've been thinking for a long time in in that you for your personal survival, you have two choices. Uh, you can either get yourself the training and maybe the equipment you need on your own dime and on your own time. So you can survive two fights, the fight on the street and the fight in court, or you need to find a different place to work because the possibility that you could be thrown under the bus civilly or criminally by your department uh, because they've had a de- deliberate indifference to training and they're looking at uh, being on the civil hook if they got a failure to train lawsuit. Um, you know, there, there's some real pitfalls there that you could be victimized by your own agency for their failure to do the right thing. Chuck Haggard, welcome back. Second tour of the Off Duty On Duty podcast for Chuck. Appreciate his time greatly. Reminder, check out today's sponsors, Manus X, Barrel Block, and ADC Belt Company. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Uh, Coming up, I'll be at SHOT Show. If you see me at SHOT Show, come by. If you're wearing an ADC Belt Company belt, I will have a marker and I'll sign it for you. How about that? I may have some special patches to give away. I don't know yet. We'll see if that gets done. Uh, Shout out to my buddy, Nancy Stevens over at uh, Tough Products for helping me out with that. Uh, 
Let's see what else. Oh, Guardian Conference coming up. And uh, that's about all, folks. Until next time, the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.